My name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors at Gospel Community Church. I want to talk with you today about the Training Day podcast. That's right, the Training Day podcast. The Training Day podcast exists to continue your learning so that you can be equipped for every good work in every day life. Our hope with the Training Day podcast is to create a resource library for you, your friends, your family, uh, whether you've been a believer for many years, new to the faith, or not a Christian at all. We're hoping that this will be a resource library for you so that you can learn what it looks like to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and land it in everyday life. So we want you to subscribe to our podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us there on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever. You can also find us on our YouTube channel, The Training Day Podcast, or our website, trainingdaypod.com. So please go subscribe and let's grow together in Christ. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. My name is David Patton, and I am one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church. And it is my pleasure this morning to bring to you the perfect, inerrant, and holy Word of God. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path this morning. The human heart is an idle factory. Tim Keller wrote in his book, Counterfeit Gods. To say this is not to imply that you have a golden calf in your living room, but it is to say that our hearts are willing to take something incomplete, an incomplete joy, and build our lives around it. What does this mean? Good question. It means that we make Little League, money, family, our job, our car, popularity, athletic ability, or health, the pillar upon which we place our entire life, especially our self-worth. We devote everything to it and sacrifice all for it. We fashion our lives around these idols. A telltale sign that you have created an idol in your life is how angry you get when someone else encroaches upon it or how valiantly you protect it when threatened. We put up walls of anger in front of our idol. Let someone threaten your reputation, your livelihood, your favorite sports team, and anger erupts from us like none other. We become ravenous and indignant to protect our precious. And what happens when it cannot support the weight of our expectations? When the boss calls and says, news of downsizing has hit your department, or the kids want to quit softball, it crumbles, it crashes and burns, and you find yourself in despair. Now, do you know what the difference between sorrow and despair is? Sorrow is pain for which there is consolation. It's losing one good thing while you have others to uh, still remain to replace it. Despair, on the other hand, is pain without consolation. Without consolation. It's losing a 
ultimate thing for which there is no replacement. When you lose the pillar of your entire life, you have lost your hope and often the very meaning of your existence. Thus, despair can lead to demise and ultimately to destruction. But if you ask someone on the street or even in the pew this morning, do you want to follow a path of despair, of demise, and ultimate destruction, they would answer with an emphatic no. And I truly believe that that's your answer this morning. Why logically would you choose a path of destruction? Why would you, sitting here in church today, choose to raise up anything higher than the almighty God who is in heaven? That wouldn't make sense, would it? It would not be logical. My friends, sin does not make sense. Sin is not logical. The meth addict doesn't wake up one morning and wish to be toothless and homeless and willing to sell himself on the street for one more hit. Yet, he takes another, and he takes another, and he takes another. Why? Because we honestly believe that it won't happen to me. We believe that that fate is only for someone else. And Paul steps in today and speaks directly to that lie. Last week in verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Jewish history is our history. We are the covenant people who through Christ, uh, through Christ are one with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learn that God's people were led through the wilderness and they were provided for by Christ, who is the rock through whom living waters flowed for the provision of the people and as a sign of the physical sacrifice for his people. However... We learned in verse 5 last week that God was not pleased with most of them. And as a result, they were overthrown in the wilderness. This ties ultimately to our text that we have before us this week because verse 5 begs these questions. What did they do that was so bad? And why is Paul bringing up such a blemish in human history after so many years? To answer the first question, they desired evil. That's what the text says this morning. They desired evil. Uh, They worshipped idols. They indulged in sexual immorality. They put Christ to the test, and they were quarreling and grumbling the whole time that their best life was back in Egypt as slaves. So as punishment, they did not make it to the promised land. They were overthrown in the wilderness. They were punished for their sin, and they did not receive the reward. These were God's people whom he rescued from slavery, and he led on a course through the wilderness on the paths towards the land that he had promised them. Yet for many, despair, demise, and destruction occurred before they could get there as they placed all manner of idols before the Lord. Now, why is Paul bringing this up, you ask? Because they are an example of what not to do. Half of this section is devoted to what not to do. Don't desire evil. Don't worship idols. Don't indulge in sexual immorality. Don't put Christ to the test and don't grumble. Many of God's people gave into their heart and created for themselves idols, both material and immaterial, in the wilderness. He is bringing this up because these Israelites are an example to the Corinthian church. Their fate was to be overthrown in the wilderness. They lost their way. They lost their focus. They gave themselves over to the desires of the mind and the body and were by nature children of wrath. 
They lost their way. In the same way, the Corinthian church was plagued with these same sins. Just look back in the text in 1 Corinthians and you see Christians attending pagan temples, creating idols of marriage and singleness, committing acts of sexual immorality that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate. Grumbling, quarreling, divisions, litigation, and that's just in this book. Paul is writing with sharp rebuke to the church who is running off the rails, a church who, through its manufacturing of idols, was on track towards demise and destruction. This is a lesson that the Corinthian church must heed, and so should we. For we also are children of the promise. We are descendants of Abraham, and the history of the people of Israel is our history. Therefore, we must also take heed of these examples, lest we repeat them. Just as Paul was writing a warning to the Christians and the Corinthians, he was warning us still today, take heed, wake up, stop repeating the cycle of idolatry as your ancestors did. But there's hope for you today. You are not alone. As you face your struggles, your hardships, your temptations, you are not alone. Paul tells us today that there is hope and it's not in some heart-concocted dopamine-laced high that we get when someone likes our post on social media. But it's in the one true God who is faithful. Today, Paul is calling us to this, and this will be our, our, our guiding theme throughout uh, this scripture. It's the sermon in a sentence, so write it down. It's going to come on the screen. Paul is calling us to fight unbelief with faith in a faithful God and seek your ultimate delight in Him. Let us begin in verse 6 to uncover God's message for us this morning. And those of you who haven't woken up yet uh, from your slumber at night, it's very quiet in here. I'm going to be shouting, please shout back at me. Let's do this. Let's go through this together. This is difficult waters, and I don't want to be the only one going through it alone. Thank you. Yes, yes. Now... Starting in verse 6, now these things took place as example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Just as the Bible over and over reveals the heart of God as loving, pursuing, and faithful, it also reveals the heart of man as selfish, retreating, and unfaithful. As each chapter unfolds, it reveals the heart of man and, and it reveals God as providing for his children, seeking for their good, giving favor, and ultimately sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ, as a ransom for his children. But despite God's pursuing, man has continually run away And the Bible chronicles this as it follows the Israelites through their flighty history. Now Paul says these things uh, took place as an example for us. Other interpretations of the Greek say they took place as a type of us. You see, this is what Paul is saying. Other than modern advancements in civilization, the Israelites and the Corinthians were the same sinful idol factories. Their hearts were the same as one people scoffed at God in the wilderness, the other through the streets of Corinth. And he is making this parallel based on their propensity to desire evil. If you were a younger sibling, you may have had such an example I know I have said it before, but my older stepbrother taught me a lot about what not to do. Uh, His antics got him in loads of trouble growing up, and I was the witness to various forms of punishment to curb his rebellion. 
no TV, no phone, no car on the weekend, being grounded, uh, etc. So as a younger brother, all I had to do to stay in the good graces of my parents was to not do what he was doing. Easy, right? This is the theme that Paul is beginning to walk out as he moves us from verses 1 through 5. First he said, uh, don't you see the blessings that the Israelite walked in? Don't you see how God alone rescued them from slavery, provided for them in the wilderness, guided them by night and by day towards the promised land? Now don't you see the many ways that they rebelled against this loving God? this rescuing God and this providing God. And, and Paul is saying, don't be like them. Don't desire evil, which is the opposition of a pure and holy God. Desiring evil is the opposite of desiring God. It is the umbrella for the list of sins that we're about to walk through. And he gives us this encouragement this morning as he says, fight unbelief with faith in a faithful God and seek your ultimate delight in him. So he's going to begin to unpack these, what they did that was so bad. Starting here in verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you remember when the Jews demanded that Aaron make a god for them? It was the first idol that they created in the wilderness. You see, Moses was up high on top of the mountain receiving direct word from God for the instruction of the the beginning of the nation of Israel in the promised land. And, And what were the Israelites doing? They were desiring something to worship. So, They melted down the gold jewelry that they had received from the Egyptians and fashioned it into a golden calf. What makes it worse is it was actually Aaron, the brother of Moses, that with his own very hands created this idol and instructed the Israelites to worship as as their God and deliverer. After they made the calf, uh, the people ate a feast and rose up and engaged in all manner of debauchery. Now, with kids in the room, we can just simply uh, deduce that this manner of debauchery was because the calf would have most likely been formed after the Egyptian god Apis, which is the god of fertility. So we'll stop there. So don't be like them. Fight idolatry by placing Jesus as your most treasured possession. You must, uh, you must likely... You most likely don't have a golden calf or a bronze serpent living in your living room. In fact, for most of us in the room, our idols are probably more subtle. Do you have anything in your life that you hold up higher than God? Do you have uh, something that you sacrifice to or give to more than God? Is it material like family or house or car or is it immaterial like status, like praise of man or like moral piety? Again, we can easily identify these things by asking, what do you defend most valiantly? What do you get most angry about when someone threatens it? And what would send you into despair if it crumbled? Whatever it is, Paul is calling you this morning to renounce your idolatry. Do not be idolaters like the Israelites is what he's saying, but instead be worshipers of the one true God through your submission to Christ as your King and Savior. 
Take an honest look into your heart today. If you can't see any areas of idolatry, ask God to reveal them to you because they are there and honestly listen to his response. Once they are identified, we must crush them and remove them from our life. This may mean that your life tomorrow does not look like your life yesterday. It may mean that you quit doing or quit raising up some of the things that you raised up yesterday. Paul is saving you from despair and demise and destruction. Moving on in verse 8, he says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, don't you remember what happened in Numbers chapter 25? You see, at this point in Israel's history, they have yet to enter into the promised land. They have begun to assimilate into the culture of the Moabites and the Midianites. These pagan nations invited the Israelites to worship the Baal. And they, with their minds set on evil, began to worship Baal at Peor and indulged again in the sexual immorality of the local pagans. And because of this, destruction fell upon their camp and the people of Israel lost 23,000 people in a single day. So don't be like them, Paul is saying. Fight sexual immorality by seeking Jesus as your greatest pleasure. God's chosen people who experience the spiritual high of God's presence leading them and providing for them fell to the temptation to engage in acts that were abominable to God. These acts were the same thing that we would call sexual immorality today. Uh, for clarification, this is any sexual act that is outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. People so close to God fell so far away. So what makes you think that you are immune uh, to such a fall? Sexual, sexual temptation has a powerful allure. The surge of dopamine in the brain mimics the hard hit of a hard narcotic, and the addiction is just as powerful. The and just like the meth addict who is toothless and, and homeless, after years of addiction, those who fall into sexual immorality will have their minds blown by what they are capable of, by what they are capable of consuming to get that high. And at the end of the ride, when you are caught or divorced or destroyed, all you will be able to say was it started so innocent. It was just coffee with an old girlfriend from school. It was just a friendly direct message on Facebook to a coworker. It was just one image on the screen. I never imagined I would end up here giving up so much to have this. Paul this morning is calling you to renounce your sexual immorality. Just like his contemporaries in Corinth, our world today is a playground for the corrupted mind. But Paul is calling you to renew your mind. He is calling you to protect your eyes and train them on Christ. He is protecting you from despair and demise and destruction. Do you need help this morning? Do you need help this morning walking out of this sin? Please, there are men in this church, there are women in this church that would love to talk to you. I will be in the back. I would love to talk to you and, and talk about ways that Christ can draw you out of this pit of destruction. Do not go another day as a slave to your lust. Moving on in verse 9, we must 
not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Since we're looking back in the book of Numbers, we'll look in the account in chapter 21 where the people of Israel uh, spoke out against God for his provision. They said, Why have you brought us out of Israel into this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God had provided for them every day manna that fell from heaven. They could bake it, boil it, um, almost like shrimp, make it in various ways. But it it was more the way they complained. You see, I imagine I would get old, it would get old eating the same thing every day, but it was the heart, the manner in which they cried out to God, being so dissatisfied in his provision. Another word for this dissatisfaction in their hearts is presumptuousness. This is the overstepping of the bounds or taking undue liberties, also known as looking a gift horse in the mouth. Also, there were no praises on their lips daily, but grumbling only. After being rescued, they told Moses that they desired the flesh pots of Egypt. In other words, I would rather be beaten and driven as a slave and eat meat than be free and led to the promised land and eat this manna day in and day out. Much like a kid who sits at the dinner table and pouts when dinner is served were the people of God in the wilderness. So don't be like them. Fight presumptuousness and grumbling with faith in a faithful God. These heart conditions are a form of pride. It's as if to say, I want you to hear and know my plight, and it is much more important than yours. When we are grumbling toward God, it is us saying that we do not trust in him or his plan for our life. And all of us in here are guilty of this. We grumble when we're asked to serve in areas of the church that we don't so desire. We grumble when uh, someone in the church encroaches upon our comfort. We grumble when answers to our prayer don't come as fast as we want or they're not the answers that we want. We grumble when we're asked to wear a mask in church. Silence your grumbling today. Don't put Christ to the test with your opinions of what he should have done in your life. Your pride is getting in the way of seeing God at work in your life. Your plan will not result in the end goal that you desire. Your heart is corrupted by sin and desperately sick. Therefore, sever the root of pride and sin by trusting in the power of the promises of a God who is mighty to save. In other words, have faith in God because he is faithful. Moving on to verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. As Paul's already stated, uh, the failings of the Israelites as God's chosen people have occurred and have been recorded for the benefit of future generations. His aim was to showcase what not to do. So I don't want to belabor the point here as if it's possible to belabor the point about quit doing the same things and expecting different results. But I digress. Paul believed uh, that the coming of Christ inaugurated the last days. This this is this this last section that he kind of tagged on that makes you kind of say, 
What was he talking about? Uh, Paul believed that the coming of Christ inaugurated the last day. Uh, therefore, we are living in the end times. Jesus' uh, Jesus's second coming, coming. So they, the Corinthians, were in the same time period that we are still in today, awaiting that return. So the complete explanation for the phrase, on whom the end of the ages comes, uh, is that it corresponds to the, but they were written down for our instruction. Do you follow me? It was written down for the Corinthians because the Corinthians were living at the end of the age, and so are we. Listen to this. Yet we act as if we are waiting for his first coming, wayward, fickle, and failing. So the Israelites' failure was recorded. It was written down that they would learn from it by learning what not to do. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Let me, let me summarize this for you. Many of you have been sitting here very quietly listening to me rant and rave. Um, if you've been unaffected by the sermon thus far, I would ask that you consider Luke 18, 10 through 14. It says this. It'll come up on the screen. Two men went down, went, well, I'm sorry, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference in the heart between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Who has a heart of pride and who a humble heart? One man exalted himself before the Lord and the other humbled himself before the Lord and exalted God. The proud says, I would never do that. I can drink however much I want. It's no problem. I, I can watch whatever I want. It's no problem. I can scroll Facebook or Twitter after my spouse goes to bed. It's no problem. I'm in control. I've got this. I can quit whenever I want. In fact, I would never do that. The problem is the proud does not acknowledge that the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Instead, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, says Proverbs. This is a warning to you today, Christian. You who pray, you who read your Bible, you who go to church, this is a warning to you today that you must take heed lest you risk it all and fall. You are not saved by your church attendance or your Bible reading. In fact, if you are relying on those things to save you from falling into the same pits of sin that our ancestors did, then despair, demise, and destruction will be what awaits you. This is a warning today that must be received with a sober heart. These biblical imperatives are spoken with the full authority of God. When Paul says, do not do this, God himself is saying through the scriptures, do not do this. Therefore, take heed, listen up, lest you fall into the traps that Satan lays for you. He will give you everything that your idle factory heart craves in order to destroy you. And you are not the first person to think of this or try this and fall flat on your face chasing after it. It's like when your parents said, 
I've been there and done that. It's not going to work out well for you. What did you do? You did it anyway, didn't you? Why? Because your heart is an idol factory and you would risk it all to worship at the altar of man-made gods. You see, you or we are no different today than those Israelites wandering in the desert. There is no temptation that has whisked me away to a land of euphoria that millions of other people have not done as well. And we think of ourselves as unique snowflakes. We're, we're not unique. Without a savior, we are rats on a wheel, spinning and spinning and spinning after a cheese that's just beyond our reach when we're chasing after anything but Christ. This is what makes the next part so sweet. So sweet. Though your hearts propel you towards destruction, Christ took our destruction upon himself and gave us his righteousness. You see, in Christ, you have been given the ability to endure, not to fall into despair or demise or destruction, but to run the race and finish strong. Not because you are different from the wayward Israelite, but because you have Christ and he has conquered this for his sin, the sin of his people. This means you do not have to be an adulterer. You do not have to be sexually immoral. You do not have to put Christ to the test or grumble or complain. If you are a Christian, you are not enslaved to the desires of your flesh. You are free. Listen to what he says, verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Isn't that great news today? That we are not the first ones to be tempted to idolatry? You are not alone. This is common to fallen men. There are many stories in this rooms of lives lived opposed to God. Addictions. Sexual immorality, pride, grumbling, the list goes on. If you think you are the only one, you are sadly mistaken. The church is filled with sinners, both in its leadership and in its membership. But that is not what unites us. It is not our sin that unites us. We are un united in Christ under the grace that he freely gives over God's children. Did you see what it says? God is faithful. When you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you know what that means? It is your faith that joins you to Christ, but it's his faithfulness that keeps you. Do you see the contrast? We are unfaithful. We manufacture idols in our heart, yet God is faithful and he comes near to us and he changes our hearts and calls us for a walk out of the idol factory. When we place our lives in him and place him at the proper seat as our king and our savior over our life, Christ applies the eternal security of his perfect work to your account. You see, we cannot survive without him in our life. Let me clarify. We cannot afford despair, demise, and destruction without him. You can pass through this life without him, yes, but one cannot experience the joy to be had and the joy yet to come without Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul has good news for you today. Listen as he continues, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape. 
This is good news. This is good news this morning. This is good news because of what it actually does not say. This is one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. Let me, let me, let me just tell you what, how it's normally quoted. It says, God will not give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than you can handle is the misquote of this verse. Have you ever heard that one? Let's dissect that one before we get into the beauty of what Paul actually says. Many people lovingly say to a hurting friend, God will not give you more than you can handle. First, this implies that all of your calamities come directly from the hand of God. If God will not give you something, then it means that all of your past pain, all of your temptation, all of the consequences for bad choices, all of your sickness, all of your abuse, your failures were all from God as if to say, take a heaping spoonful of that. Second, sometimes it does feel like more than I can handle. Sometimes it beats me down desperately. Sometimes it's unbearable. Sometimes the abuse is still paralyzing to this day. And last, the statement implies that it's up to you to handle it. How unloving, how uninvolved this misquote says that God places a weight of pain on you or temptation upon you and you are the one that handles it. You are alone in your struggle. Your fight and your endurance is up to you. So let's get back to what the text does say quickly. It says, And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape. First, as a Christian, God still knows that you are in a world, and this world lures you to sin with a daily barrage of temptation. See here that the verse is not giving you uh, tempta- God giving you temptation, but stepping in between you and the enemy. This is the removing of the ideas God is puppet master uh, in your life, as the previous misquote says, and seeing him as your savior and rescuer. Imagine an enemy combatant taking aim at you on the battlefield. As he squeezes the trigger, from the corner of your eye, you see a figure moving towards you. Just at the right second as the bullet hurls towards your chest, that figure, your savior, steps in front of you and takes that bullet. And you are able to run then, run for cover. By defeating Satan, sin and death, Christ defanged the enemy. And though his attacks can rip you to shreds, your savior lives to defend you tomorrow as well. Because here is where Paul is going with this thought. His ultimate concern is that you are able to endure. Last verse. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This does not mean that you will not have hard times. This does not mean your health will not fail. This does not mean you won't be broken and wounded and humbled by God. Your health. Wealth and happiness is not the ultimate aim of Christ's protection. As we learn today, our hearts are sinfully disposed to making these into idols. And we see that in our past, the past through the Israelites and the Corinthians, that their hearts were prone to grasp onto even something good and make it a God. Likewise, secular culture, as well as people in the church, will lift up health and wealth and happiness as ultimate things, as idols. But to do so would be to fall into another pit of despair when health fades. Demise when hardship comes and destruction when the end comes and you are clinging to these things for salvation. 
But when God steps in front of you, he is protecting your internal, eternal salvation. His goal is that the Christian endures despite your health, whether sick or feeble or frail, despite your wealth, whether poor or penniless or struggling to make end meet, and despite your happiness, whether things work out in your life the way you want them to or not, God exalted the name of Jesus that your knee would bow to him and your uttermost joy would be found in him. Jesus has already done everything you need to endure. His death on the cross and his resurrection secured in him anyone who places him as their king and their savior. This is because on the cross, he took your idolatry. He took your sexual immorality. He took your pride and your grumbling and placed it on the cross. And as he died the death in your place for your sins, taking that sin he gives to you his righteousness. This is the great exchange. And it is great because you had nothing to do with it. But it was done for you that you may endure into eternity to be with the object of your highest desire. And that's Jesus Christ. So this morning in closing, this is what it means to fight these sin propensities in our life. We fight unbelief with faith in a faithful God. We fight with faith. Do you have faith in Christ that the work that he performed on the cross was specifically for you? That the forgiveness of sins that he accomplished on the cross applies to you? That defeating Satan and sin and death on the cross has daily application in your life? You must if you're going to endure. You see, we fight by hiding ourselves in what Christ has already done. We fight daily temptation by reminding ourselves that Jesus has already done the work and all we need to do is draw near to him, believing that he will rescue us to the uttermost. How far have you drifted this morning? How long have you waited? Jesus is not far off. This morning, identify your idols today through prayer and self-observation, or even ask a trusted friend what they see in your life and begin to dismantle them by placing Jesus in his proper place above it. Last, seek your ultimate delight in him. Do you want to be free from idols and unbelief in your life, the ones that enslave you into their service, the ones that would destroy you if they crumbled? Begin to seek your delight in the Lord. You know you have tried other things to satisfy your heart. You know they don't work. You know the feelings of despair when this fat or that idol doesn't pan out. This is why the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand, is so beautiful. Because only Jesus can bear the weight of our seeking and desperate need for an ultimate thing. Ask the Lord today for a thirst for his presence and that he would quench that thirst with his word. To know Jesus is to delight in him. That word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand is pleasures forevermore. Praise Jesus that his sacrifice makes it possible to endure. Let's pray. 
Father God, we lift you up as our ultimate, as our king. This morning, as we hear your word read, read, may we be reminded of our sin propensities. May we be reminded of the slippery slope, that idolatry, that sexual immorality, that all these things are abominable to you, that all of these things draw us away from you in a slippery slope and they go so fast and they take us so far. If we find ourselves so far away this morning, would you call us back? Like the wayward son, would you welcome us back with your grace and your forgiveness? May your spirit be heavy on our hearts this morning as we perform self-analysis, self-observation, and we call upon you to apply the healing salve of your gospel to our wounded and wayward hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.